Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's talk, given by meditation instructor Jim Dunn, is entitled The Value of Community and is the 10th in our series of talks based on the book Interconnected, Embracing Life in Our Global Society by His Holiness the 17th Jawang Karmapa. What is community? When we think of community, we think of our town, our neighborhood, our family. Communities provide us with support and a sense of belonging. But that sense of belonging can all too easily transform into a tendency to exclude those we feel are different from ourselves. His Holiness asks us to examine our definition of community and expand it to include not only those we feel a kinship with, but all of humankind and, indeed, all living beings. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Uh, is anybody here for the first time? No, we all have more or less regulars. Good. Good. Good to see everybody here. And I guess next week we're going to be at the Thurber House. Is that it? Now, I got a call this week from Eric. I'm filling in for him. He was supposed to give this talk. And he reminded me we're meeting here. Otherwise, I'd be wondering why nobody was at Tifreth Israel or why so many people were there and none of them were us. So, so I'm having a cup of coffee. My wife told me this morning this is National Coffee Day. So, we'll dedicate this practice to coffee. An old Zen saying was, uh, coffee is, for enlightenment, coffee is very efficacious, I think was the way he put it. And do you know the story of how tea came to be? Bodhidharma, the original founder of Zen Buddhism, was meditating and having so much trouble keeping awake. Well, first of all, he said he cut out his eyelids so he couldn't close his eyes, which is why you see him with sort of these bulging eyes in a lot of pictures, and threw them out. And they sprouted up as tea, tea plants. So that is the true story of how tea came to be. The botanist probably would differ with that, but it's still a nice story. So, anyway, we are continuing on in the book. I guess we have one more last chapter, which I guess I will be doing again next week. And then hopefully we'll be moving on to something else. So we usually begin these talks with uh, the four-line refuge prayer. And I will recite it in Tibetan three times. And if you know it, please feel free to join along. Sanje Shodong Sok Ki Chok Namla Cheng Shup Pardu Dakni Kyapsu Chi Dakji Jen Sok Chi Pe Sonam Ki Drola Pencher Sanje Drupar Shok 
Sanjay Shodong Sokki Choknamla Cheng Shup Burdu Daknai Kyapsu Chi Dakji Jen Sok Chi Peso Namki Trola Pincher Sanjay Druparshak Sanjay Shodong Sok Ki Chok Namla Cheng Shup Bardu Dakni Kyapsu Chi Dakji Jen Sok Ki Pe So Naham Ki Drola Pencher Sanjay Druparshok Okay, thank you. So this is chapter 10 of the book by His Holiness on interconnected, being interconnected to all beings. And this is one, in some ways the book I find very repetitive in a lot of ways, but he's been talking about throughout the whole thing. This chapter specifically is on community. And he begins by pointing out that we all belong to one big community, the human community, that we're all human and we all belong to that, and that should be the one community that we always honor in some ways above all others in which we participate. Because we are all marked more deeply and profoundly by being human than any other community. And for those of you with a Christian background, actually it was a Jewish rabbi that once pointed this out at a rally, if you go back to the story of Adam and Eve that we all came from, we all descended from them, so in fact we are all family. And in the Buddhist teachings, with the notion of rebirth, and I'll talk about this a little bit later in the talk, again we sometimes talk about all beings having been my mother and to care about all of them equally. So our most basic responsibilities we have are as human beings. And most of the unhealthiest dynamics we are, arise because we fail to honor the primacy of that. Certainly we're seeing a lot of it now with the whole question of immigration. Our president talking about America first, the people trying in caravans coming here that are all rapists and murderers trying to get in our country. <clears throat> but this is not the way to think about it. We need to remember that they're all human, they're all part of our community, and they all are merit our attention and love and concern. We need to really work hard, and this comes not naturally for most of us. I think from my day studying anthropology, one of the things that comes up is we really are tribal by nature. We have these groups of us, and that's kind of who we belong to. And I understand in some of the African languages, the indigenous African languages, even the word for human is the same as the word for their tribe. And if you're not a member of the tribe, that you may not even be human. So we need to get past that. We need to acknowledge the basic humanity of all of us. 
what the Native Americans call the two-leggeds. So we need to work on getting past any kind of contempt or resentment for those outside our community, you know, the religious groups, the political groups, any of the particular communities must in some ways be compatible with our basic humanity. We're not necessarily the same, but whatever we do should in some way contribute to the whole of humanity and not detract or demean. And here he is really emphasizing the idea of maintaining a real vividness of the whole community, of developing a heartfelt sense of being part of the whole catastrophe, to quote Sorba the Greek. This is not an abstract exercise, but something that we try to need to develop in our day-to-day interactions. There really is no natural limit to our interconnectedness. He suggests starting with those close to us and expanding our circle of having compassion. And I think it was Mother Teresa that said, you know, we tend to draw the circle around our families much too small. We need to keep expanding that, enlarging that. And although the Karmapa does not mention the Buddha, this book, he's trying to maintain a very secular stance. He's trying to broaden the teachings and make them clearly accessible without getting into the biases or the religiosity of some of other people may hold against us. But one of the Buddha's more radical innovations was opening the Sangha to everyone without regard to caste or status and culture. And this was a culture that was structured around the caste system. It took him a little while longer to get around to women, but he was actually persuaded of that too. One of the things he did in the early Sangha was when you became a monk, when you ordained, somebody would shave your head. And in the caste system, having a lower caste person touch you or shave your head would have been, they'd be majorly contaminated. Wouldn't be allowed back in the house wherever you lived. So he made sure nobody knew what caste anybody was. You had no idea who was going to shave you. And that was one way of cutting past that, getting past that. You know, he said something along the lines that I think Martin Luther King even provided that judging people not by their caste or the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character. And he really worked hard at emphasizing that, the equality of everyone in the Sangha. And part of what we're talking about here is becoming a bodhisattva. Again, something he doesn't talk about directly in the chapter, but we talk about it quite a bit in this tradition. Bodhisattva is a being devoted to awakening and acting for the benefit of all beings. And if you stop to think about it, this is one of the most radical and powerful of all Buddhist practices, this idea of benefiting all beings and staying present until everyone becomes enlightened. As Shanti Davis said to quote him directly, he says, May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, 
a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. Now that's a pretty big aspiration. But I think it's one, if we just kind of repeat that, I'm not sure how many of you have read The Way of the Bodhisattva, but it's in there. It's a book I would highly recommend studying. I know Tom, Lama Tom, had been going through it before. He had to spend time taking care of his wife. I'm not sure if he got through that chapter or not, but it's, I think, a wonderful thing to read, to study, and to think about. And community is really important to our flourishing personally as human beings. It's really in community that we find meaning in our lives, and if belonging to a particular community shapes in some way, is inconsistent with our more fundamental humanity, we, we will not grow well. Only when our particular communities clearly recognize and are supportive of our more basic humanity will we truly flourish, and we will contribute to human flourishing as well. I think so much of our practice really comes down to trying to flourish as humans, as individuals, and as a community, and as humanity. We really can't live independent of humanity. We can leave some communities, join other communities, but we are social animals. The idea of having been raised by wolves, it's sort of fun to think about sometimes, is just simply out of impossible. Nobody could survive without human connection, human family. Years ago, there was a psychology study by Harlow, I think it was, who was raising monkeys in a lab. And they were given sort of these wire mothers. They were fed, basically. And they just did not thrive at all. They really needed that love, that care, that attention. And when you gave them more attention, they started to thrive, to do better. So this is really an important thing to think about and to internalize. Leaving the human community, some people have done that, but after they've been part of it, given the resources to do that, the basic skills. And then when you do take time away, and I think this is a good thing to do, he points out those that did. The Buddha leaving home, Jesus in his 40 days in the desert, Milarepa living in the mountains, Thoreau by his pond, have given us lots of inspiration over the centuries to rethink our priorities. And he reminds us that what we do in our personal life also has a larger impact on society. Little things like littering have a way of compounding and resulting in trashy looking neighborhoods. You know, there was that broken window theory of crime in some cities where if you let the broken window stay, the litter on the ground, people don't behave as well. That kind of leads to more outlaw behavior, gang action, and more antisocial behavior. I think I mentioned last time I was recently in Scandinavia, Norway, and it's really striking there on just how clean it is. You don't necessarily see trash cans all around either but it seems people just don't litter. And they also seem to be very conscious of not using too many disposables. And those little things have a way of adding up. You know, the use of plastic straws, I know people are moving against that, but I just read the other day that 
one company is making tea bags and these plastic little bags that apparently are very effective in getting the tea out, but also give you these microparticles of plastic to drink. And so we don't quite know the effects of all of that, but somehow I don't think they can be good in the long run. So he recommends we all take some responsibility for the world we inhabit. It may not be our job, but if it's not our job, whose, whose job is it? You know, and we can do some of this stuff. You know, I had a neighbor, I always thought he was a little bit nuts. But he would sometimes just go out and clean up the neighborhood just because he wanted to. And thinking about that, he really wasn't so nuts. He was being more than just a good neighbor. He was being a great neighbor and a part of the neighborhood, cleaning it up like that, making it look better. He talks, well, throughout the book, he talks quite a bit about his own family. Growing up in the high plateaus of Tibet, sitting around the fire together, sharing their day, telling stories, real sense of being interconnected with his family. Very simple in most ways, a very primitive life, but one that was very rich and had real warmth. A lot of us lack that with basic experience and modernity. We don't have these close-knit families with moral support that gets us through tough times. I know over the years I have talked to people and various things that the last place they'll turn to support is their family. You know, just so much problems there and negativity. And when I talk to prisoners, that's often a major factor, is not having a good family. But we need to find some way to create that. And that's part of what we do in groups like this. When we take refuge as Buddhists, we're taking refuge not only in the Buddha, the Dharma, but also the Sangha, the community. We become a part of this community. And we need to really work at making that richer and important and uh, support it, and it will support us. I know a lot of Buddhist groups I've been a part of, and over the years I've heard a little bit about that too, is, you know, we come, we sit, we meditate in silence, and then we go home. And we really don't get to know each other very well. I know a lot of people have been working on making that better and more interactive and connecting. And I think that's a very important thing. The Buddha declares we are not separate, we are interdependent. Biologist Lewis Thomas says the driving force in nature on this kind of planet with this biosphere is cooperation. The most inventive novel and novel of all schemes in nature and perhaps the most significant in determining the great landmark events of evolution is symbiosis, living together, life-supporting life. Unless we really understand this, we are split between caring for ourselves and caring for the world. And although through meditation we discover that this inner distinction between inner and outer is false. I think a few weeks ago I talked a little bit about the acrobat sutta, where two acrobats are getting ready to practice, and the older one says to the younger one, now you watch out for me and take care of me and I will take care of you, and this is how we will get through our act and earn our money safely. And the younger one says, no, no, I will take care of me and you will take care of yourself, and that way you will get through our act safely and earn our tips and go on to the next event. So some monks overheard this 
little discussion between the acrobats, and he went to the Buddha to ask what was right. And the Buddha said the younger one was. By taking care of ourselves, we are taking care of others. And, you know, I've read in a number of different teachings, if you want to save the world, become enlightened. You know, it's kind of taking care of ourselves, getting our, cleaning up our own minds, our own act. You know, it's kind of the important thing here. And he also points out now that the opportunities that communities offer in training for independence help us develop awareness and offer us a way to engage in action. And he also talks quite a bit here about it's not just enough to have this heartfelt sense of compassion. Compassion doesn't do much unless it leads us to do something, to act. And we can begin to act in small ways, helping in our small communities. And that can help us develop confidence to move to larger communities, to spread it out. Consider recently the effect of uh, Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish girl who's been racing all kinds of noise about the environment and came over on a boat on her own, I guess didn't want to make an environmental impact by flying in a plane or using a ship, so I guess she sailed on her own from Sweden to the United States and has started this movement where school kids are staying home protesting the environment. She actually gave a speech at the UN. <clears throat> really inspiring what one 16-year-old can do that really, you know, cares. She's got this whole global moment, movement of school children going. And the issues really are serious. We really need to, to work with this. So smart, start small and scale up, as Karmapa says. The Bodhisattva vow sounds overwhelming if we take it seriously. But by being bodhisattvas at home, at work, and in other communities, we are a part of, if you will, and have an impact on the world. When we fail to create a place for everyone in our communities, we reinforce the patterns of us and them that are odds with the reality of interdependence. This has been what has called, been called structural violence by some social scientists. And that's defined as violence wherein some social structure or social institution may harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. This would include basic things like sexism, racism, probably most of the isms you can think of, things that divide us into us and them that somehow limit people and keep them out of some situations, cut off some of their benefits. Another variety of that expansion of it is cultural violence, which refers to uh, the way culture can be used to justify or legitimate, legitimatize direct or structural violence. Again, that may be exemplified by religion, ideology, in some ways language and art. You know, and I guess one way, one example I always think of that is cultural violence is a notion we often have that it is a good and noble thing to die for your country in war. I mean, that's something that kind of gives us the idea that going to war and dying in a war might be a good and noble thing to do. These more subtle forms of violence 
are underlying by underlying by fear that leads us to avoid and shun those that are different from us. Looking at our these differences with compassion sometimes really requires courage. The Bodhisattva vow depends more than just thoughts and prayers. I think we've heard that quite a bit lately, haven't we? Thoughts and prayers. It must lead to clear and courageous action. We need to examine how to respond to those who are different, vulnerable, so we don't let our compassion slip into pity. Pity can look like compassion, but it is a fundamentally selfish, since it allows us to maintain some distance between ourselves and those in need or are troublesome in other ways. In Vipassana Buddhism, sometimes when they're talking about the four measurables, they talk about the direct thing like compassion is, you know, the aspiration that all beings be free from suffering. And then they talked about the enemy, compassion would be cruelty. And then the fire enemy that looks kind of like compassion is pity. And pity often has this idea, you know, you poor thing, I'll help you. And suddenly we've cast somebody into being a poor thing. And we really need to approach this as kind of a partnership. I know when I go into prisons and work with the guys, I am not there because I am sort of an educated old white guy and know stuff. I go there hoping to learn stuff from them and to be partners with them and generating some sort of transformation maybe in both of us. You know, I've certainly learned a lot about some of my edges of compassion and biases and prejudices. And some of those are just kind of hard to overcome. You know, we grew up in a society with these fundamental beliefs some of the racist ideas that I grew up with were just part of the background. Nobody questioned them. And uh, so as we begin to question them, you can't just change your mind overnight like that. I mean, I know many of you have been practicing meditation for some time and still have some challenges when you're meditating. It just doesn't happen instantly, but we're working on it. That's the aspiration. This is a path. When our compassion is really anchored in, in courage and a firm commitment to act effectively, we can begin to see those who suffer most and therefore warrant the most compassion. Courage gives us the force to face any challenge and act effectively. And I guess one of the things in Buddhism that we really need to think about is when we run into difficulties, challenges, or suffering, sometimes the tendency is to look away, to avoid that. I don't want to go there. And the practice is, is to go there, to look at it directly. You know, Tara Brooks' wonderful book title, Radical Acceptance. It's not that it's okay what's happening in the world, but we need to acknowledge that it is and deal with it that way, to look at it that way. He then talks some about the challenge of creating meaningful relationships in virtual communities. And we talked about this a little earlier when we talked more about, in chapter two, the internet communities. But it's so easy, he points out, to create a false online personas and behave in ways we never would consider with people we can actually see and talk to. 
we're not really interacting with a real person, but we're acting as a machine. And sometimes, you know, when I'm online, I read some of the reader comments to news articles, and I am just stunned at how really hateful a lot of them are. You know, how really hostile, critical. It just doesn't, you know, it just kind of amazes me how, I don't know, the quite raised word for it. I just want to say how stupid some people are. But, and that doesn't seem to be a nice thing to say here. But it really is disturbing to see some of that. He does acknowledge the use of virtual communities that have real functions. And uh, he talks about them being commercial community enterprises. What they're really doing is they're trying to capture our attention to sell us stuff. Even if their original intentions were not for profit, the temptation remains for the founders to generate revenue. And I don't think Facebook was started with the idea of, you know, making Zuckerberg a millionaire or billionaire. I think he really wanted to create something fun and connect. And it just turned into this massive thing that made him a billionaire and uh, really takes way too much of our attention and too many other negative things are coming out of it. But then he also talks about like he was planning on making a trip to give a teaching and something went wrong, he couldn't go. So he was able to use the internet and the web to live stream his teachings and that way maintain that. And he does still some teachings that way, and I know we've all looked at some teachings on the web and really benefited from them. I know there's enough Dharma talks now on the internet to listen to that you could probably listen to them seven days a day. I mean, it's just that much material out there. But still, even the virtual communities where we can have some real meaningful intentions, it's still not quite the same. You know, sometimes in Zen they talk about passing on the tradition warm hand to warm hand. And that is kind of what it is about. We really need the human contact, the human interaction. We need that personal attention. I think I mentioned before that in England, uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister at that time, created a Department of Loneliness. Or Ministry of Loneliness, I forget the exact title, but loneliness is in there. That loneliness is becoming a big problem. And here, uh, the Karmapa mentions that in Japan, if you want someone to talk to and spend time with, you can rent a friend. That's kind of disturbing, isn't it? I'm lonely. For 15 bucks an hour, will you come over and hang out with me? But he also points out that this whole internet works because so many people are connecting and making distinct connections distributed around the world. It works because of interdependence. He just kind of recommends that we pause when we log on and spend a moment reflecting on all the other people online that are also like you, trying to make some sort of connection and, as he points out throughout this book, are all trying to be happy and to avoid suffering. But see if we can generate that sense of personal connection 
even when you're online. Just take a moment to work at that. And if you read about what's going on in national politics, you also see a great need for wise and compassionate response. So consider these and other ways to mitigate the personalizing effect of relating to others deep electronically. Infusing our contact with others with vividness and a warmth of sensory perceptions is is vital not only for building communities, but also for ensuring compassion and other qualities of interdependence that make the transition from principle to action in the world. Our compassion needs to improve from head to heart. The suffering we see on screen is real, and if our compassion is to be meaningful, it needs to flow out through our senses. So we're connecting and living with that sense of connectedness fully. And along with the internet and the global community, he talks also about building what he would call an internet, developing a sort of interconnectedness. And here he talks a little bit about some of our Buddhist practices. He talks all, of, like I mentioned at the beginning, a little bit about all beings having been our mother, if we accept the rebirth thing. And he points out a little bit on the challenges of that that some people have. And he uses the argument in this book, though maybe some of you have heard, that things are caused by like things. And a thought has no physicality to it. It's totally immaterial. So can something immaterial come from something material? The Buddhist thinking is that it cannot, just as an acorn will never produce an apple tree. Something of its matter really cannot produce something that is not matter, like a thought. So thoughts come from previous thoughts. And that goes back to the beginningless time and the mystery of how all of this got started. But even if you have that problem, and he points out that not believing in rebirth is also a statement of faith. You know, I guess one of the words I think about a lot when I think about my spirituality is mystery. You believe in rebirth, you don't believe in rebirth, it's totally unscientific. But that is also a statement of faith. You can't prove that either. Both are equally unknowable in a final and scientific way. And I have found, thinking over the years, there are other ways of thinking about the idea of rebirth. You know, you see twins, children of the same parents, same DNA, same childhood upbringing, and they often go off in very different directions. You know, I heard once about this young, this child was three years old, heard a cello, and said, I want to make that sound, and became a world-famous cellist later on. I mean, where did that come from? Had she had some past life experience, some connection? And you have the Shirley MacLaine, some of them sound nutty, remembering past lives. But some of their tales are almost convincing, so I don't know why we'll leave it as a mystery. But in any event, consider all the lives and labors that we are connected with in growing and harvesting our foods, how much we depend on others just for almost everything we have. 
you know, if we want to eat, we go to the grocery store. That food was raised by a farm, had farmers, had workers harvesting it, picking it. Uh, somebody had to get it on a truck, delivered it to either a grocer or farmer's market or to a processing plant where it was canned. Just so many beings come into whatever we have and consume. Our clothing, everything. You know, in Zen, the meal prayer, before every meal they recite this, earth, water, fire, air, and space combined to make this meal. Numberless beings gave their lives and labors that we may eat. May we be nourished that we may nourish life. I really like that as sort of a grace. It's the idea of reflecting on all the things that kind of went in to getting our dinner on the table. And he talks about being separated from his parents when he was seven years old. And while that was a little bit traumatic at first, he was well taken care of. And so he talks about those that took care of him as not just his biological parents, but the word he used, and I kind of like this, is his benefiting parents. And many of us have had benefiting parents. For some of us, it would have been a teacher in school, some kind of mentor that helped us become who we are, helped shape us. And the boundaries between our community begin to disappear when we strengthen our basic connectedness. We ourselves must dissolve these boundaries to live in interdependence. We must realize our human community is boundless. So some of the ways we may work in embodying this and kind of being a little more Buddhist here you know, one of our fundamental practices and forms of meditation we teach in this tradition is Tonglen, sending and receiving. And that is a great practice to work on this, of visualizing all the suffering of other beings. You can pick a group or broaden it out to all beings or just an individual and breathing in all of their suffering and breathing out all of your kindness and love and compassion and work at it that way. Just keep broadening that circle. And this is, you know, Buddhism has been a spiritual force against social injustice, degrading spiritual, religious rites and ceremonies and sacrifices. It denounced the tyranny of the caste system and advocated the equality of all men. It emancipated women and gave them spiritual freedom. Now, obviously, there's some backsliding along the way, but bringing about really such radical change really does take time. And we talk about the causes of suffering, one of them is attachment, and attachments to our beliefs are probably one of the most challenging forms of attachment to uproot. That's something we really need to examine, to look at our minds. I just finished In Love with the World by Mindy Rinpoche, which is a wonderful book. And in that, he talks about having, you know, read growing up, he grew up, you know, as a Rinpoche, a talku, was coddled, pampered really taken care of and educated firmly within the monastery. Wherever he went, he went first class. People brought him his food. And he understood, you know, some of his ancestors or family had done these wandering retreats. And he wanted to do one. So one night, he basically runs away from home. Gets on a gets cab, takes it down to the train station, buys the cheap railway fare, and talks throughout the book or at the beginning of the book anyway, 
all the aversion he had to come over, over overcome, all these smelly people, all this food, this crowding, you know, these are all things that he just had never really experienced before. And examining his mind, looking at that, was really a powerful practice for him. And he kept that up. He got very, very sick, nearly died. And the kind man got him to a hospital and he was cured. But apparently he spent four and a half years wandering the world like that. But the beginning part where he's first encountering the real world in such a brutal and raw way, and if you're in India, it really is a different kind of experience where people really are crowded together. They do not bathe regularly. They're having a hard time getting people to put toilets in their homes. So there's all kinds of little issues like that with just simply the smell of the world and everything else. But if you're not insulated from it, most of us would have a real challenge being there. So, it'll be the gist of the chapter is just about becoming a bodhisattva, having that aspiration to save the world, to realize, remove all the sufferings in the world. So, I think that's about all I have to say this morning, and there's time for discussion, questions, responses, arguments, if anybody has anything to say or add. Microphone is over there. Uh, so one one thing I sometimes struggle with a little bit uh, is connecting uh, sort of my my motivation for political action to uh, what I kind of consider my the core of my, my Buddhist practice, and, and I guess what I mean by that is. You know, I've got this right. I've been thinking about this way for so long, but in the process of meditation, for example, it seems like the idea is constantly dropping the agenda, you know, mm -hmm. and allowing sort of this innate, sort of nature of the book, I guess, manifest. Yeah. Uh, so when I when I you know so I you know try to move down the path in that way, but then. The idea of political action seems to be naturally and inevitably connected to belief, right? One of the things you touched on towards the end was attachment to belief. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess I, I guess the thing is, I sometimes worry that my motivation for political action is ultimately ego-based. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean. So, you could speak to that. Yeah, I guess my response to that is that if you look at it in terms of what we sometimes call the three poisons, greed, hatred, aversion, and delusion, ignorance, if you really examine your mind and look for any of those, and if you have some, you know, grasping, I want something, or I really don't like this, then maybe that is getting you a little off the path. Now, that's hard to do. And I, believe me, have similar challenges when I read about politics. Uh, I do not have nice thoughts about our current president. But, uh, but that is the challenge, and that's what we need to look at, is kind of getting past those things, to look at your mind, to look at what it's doing to this, 
and to be aware of our stories, of what we're telling ourselves. You know, I think we all live in stories on, I'm this kind of guy and I like this kind of thing. And so dropping the storyline and just being with what is, accepting it, and then responding in a way that is compassionate with the intention of alleviating the suffering and the difficulties. And I think intention is important. You know, when we be begin our practice, we begin often with the intention that our practice will be of some benefit to all beings. And when we end our practice or in these sessions, we form the intention that this was all done to benefit all beings. So if you work at maintaining those attitudes, I think you're on the right track. Does that help? Make sense? Anybody else have a comment? Yeah, I think Kim makes an excellent point on really looking more at the needs, the issues, rather than getting wrapped up in personalities. Because that's where we tend to get really off on wrong thought. Well, anything else? No, I think that's all I have to say, so let's take a moment to dedicate the merit that may our time together be of benefit, not just in this community, but in the community of Columbus, Ohio, and the state of Ohio, and the United States, and may this benefit spread out to all of the human community, and let us be aware that the human community is under it all our community, the one we need to care about. So let's take a moment to just kind of contemplate that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.